Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison and I am here to bring you some juicy updates from the world of motorcycle racing in this time of COVID-19 pandemic international crisis. Now, in recent editions of the Paddock Pass podcast, we've been taking a little nostalgic look at seasons gone by in the past, but we have had some quite significant updates regarding uh, the possibility of racing in 2020 uh, in light of this global pandemic. And I'm glad to say that I have two esteemed colleagues with me today to discuss some of these possibilities and they are none other than Asphalt and Rubber's Jensen Beeler. Hello Jensen, welcome back to the show. Hello Neil, I, I am here for the juicy updates. And Mr. David Emmett, Evergreen and uh, Paddock Pass podcast regular coming at you live from the Netherlands. Hello David. Hello Neil, yes I'm uh, green but uh, it should wash off. <laughs> So uh, I have to say a couple of weeks ago, the situation uh, regarding the possibility of seeing any on-track action in 2020 was looking uh, rather hopeless and, and rather pessimistic. Um, but thankfully, there does appear at this moment in time to be uh, some light at the end of the tunnel. We've heard uh, numerous interviews with uh, Dorna CEO, the man that basically oversees uh, Dorna's MotoGP and World Superbike Operation, Carmelo Espeleta, in the last two weeks. And uh, it does seem that there is... Uh, a bit of a plan in place uh, to go racing with uh, two dates uh, for MotoGP, penciled in the diary for July, and uh, also a date for the World Superbike Championship to get underway uh, at the start of August. But all three of those races will be taking place at Jerez as it stands. Uh, but before we get into that, um, obviously, uh, we're three gentlemen uh, living in three different locations uh, around the world. And uh, I'd just like to get maybe a bit of a, a general update uh, with regards to what the situation is currently um, in the place where you guys live. Um, we are recording this on the 12th of May at the moment. So uh, obviously these uh, these conditions change by the week. Uh, but let's start off with you, Jensen. Um, obviously you're situated up there on the West Coast in uh, Portland, Oregon. Um, how are things in the US? From what we're seeing in Europe, um, US hasn't been taking this whole uh, pandemic that well. Um, but what's kind of day-to-day -day life like? And uh, are there signs of, um, well, signs of improvement on the horizon? Yeah, truthfully, Neil, it really depends on where you live. Um, obviously, the United States, we have 50 states. We have a handful of territories on top of that. And how each one of those localities has been affected by the coronavirus outbreak and what they're doing uh, now currently in terms of either reopening their economies or, or continuing to be locked down really does vary state by state and location by location. So as you mentioned, I'm in Portland, Oregon. Oregon has been tremendously lucky in terms of having very, very few uh, coronas, coronavirus uh, infections. We have a very low death rate. Our hospital systems haven't been overwhelmed. Life here for me has truthfully been very similar to normal life. Um, our restaurants have been closed down, but you can still take out food. You're allowed to go outside. You can exercise. Wearing a mask is a voluntary thing. Um, you know, there's certainly been layoffs and closed businesses, uh, essential businesses are supposed to stay open. What's being defined as an essential business is, is a little bit up for grabs in terms of definitions. But, you know, like I said, it, it's been a relatively mild uh, issue here. 
go one state up or one state down, Washington and California, it, it's a little bit of a different story. And then it comes down to kind of what county you're in inside those states, because Seattle obviously was one of the first places to have an outbreak. The San Francisco Bay Area was hit quite hard. We're seeing uh, a surge of cases in Los Angeles and then, you know, go across to the East Coast. New York is is full on global pandemic, uh, one of the worst places in the world to be for for the coronavirus. So it's tough to give you just a single answer because it really does depend on where you're talking about. Um, I can say from a macro level, we've um, predominantly seen the federal government leave the issue to the state governors. So it really depends on the actions of those governors. And we've seen a lot of those actions let's say, mere uh, political divides. So the West Coast and East Coast states, the more liberal states, are tending to err more on uh, having citizens locked down, restricting movement, restricting businesses, restricting commerce. The central states, which are tend, to, tend to be more Republican, more conservative, uh, are pushing for a quicker reopening. And truthfully, those states have also been the least affected by uh, the outbreak because they're more rural. So... Um, it's created an interesting tension politically in the United States. Obviously, if anyone's following the news on, on what's happening in the United States, there's, there's a great political divide on this. And, you know, as a country, we're just now starting to see uh, states opening back up. In fact, the, you know, we're in the first week of May now. We're actually in the second week of May now. But the first week of May, we were seeing the very first startings of uh, states reopening their economies and opening up businesses and easing restrictions. And, um, now into the second week, we're seeing even more states follow suit. So we're in the very early days of turning around our actions to combat this virus. And the tension is whether or not that's too soon of, of an action. Um, if we were to look at our federal guidelines in terms of opening back up, just about every state is jumping the gun. Um, we can have a debate on whether or not that's that's an issue. That's a, that's a different podcast probably, but no state has, has meet the requirements in terms of having uh, a trend, a negative uh, trend in terms of uh, coronavirus growth. Um, we've seen a lot of states have plateaued. Some states are showing negative trends, but haven't had a, a long enough uh, sustaining of that trend yet. Um, so it'd be curious to see. I think everyone in the United States is just kind of holding their breath and seeing what the next two to three weeks look like in terms of, you know, are we going to see an uptick in, in cases or, you know, have we called it correctly on this? And truthfully, the answer is going to probably vary from, from state to state, like, you know, for the reasons I've mentioned before. Uh, Jensen, um, a question for you. Are you yeah. allowed to ride a, are you allowed to ride a motorcycle? I've been allowed to ride a motorcycle throughout this entire pandemic. Right. But what about tracks and stuff? I mean, can you go on track days? Are they still doing track days or have tracks been closed? Tracks have been closed. I hate to say a blanket statement across the U.S. because I don't know the case for every track in the United States. But I would say, by and large, the the the, the issue has been that just about any gathering of more than fifty people. It's it, again, it varies state by state. Uh, here in Oregon, I believe it's twenty five. I think California it was twenty five or fifty. Um, they were limiting gatherings. Uh, and that effectively shut down just about every track day organization 
uh, and racing organization in the United States. Uh, my local uh, racing series here that I race with Omra, uh, along with our, our one two in the, to the north uh, in Washington, Wormra. We've had our schedule for the year so far slashed. Uh, the first two or three rounds have been canceled or postponed. Uh, it's been a similar case down in California. I do think uh, the Chuck Walla uh, racing series, the CVMA, uh, I do believe they ran a race earlier in the year, but that was at the very, very, very start of the pandemic. And, and we hadn't quite had a lockdown yet in, in the country, but yeah, by and large, um, recreational track use and professional track use has, has been halted. I do believe Moto America is set to start their season in Wisconsin at, at road America. Uh, and that will be in July, if I'm correct. Okay, so obviously uh, the USA and the Netherlands differ massively in terms of size and population, David, but uh, how has the Netherlands been coping with the uh, the coronavirus pandemic? Has it been uh, a quite a massive difference in terms of uh, reaction and uh, number of infections, number of deaths? Uh, would, uh, to an extent, there are certain parallels with the US in that uh, what we had was a number of um, uh, centers of infection, really, especially centered around large gatherings. Um, in February, they celebrated uh, a carnival or carnival or, or Mardi Gras, the, uh, the the Dutch equivalent, which is a little bit less colorful but um, uh, and involves a lot more drinking. Um, and uh, that were that saw lots and lots of people. Uh, uh, getting together to celebrate it. It celebrated more in the south of the country, and there were huge outbreaks in the south. In the north, uh, for example, talking to Peter Baum, who lives in um, um, uh, who lives in Assen, the you know the the, the city, uh, he said. There were virtually no outbreaks there at all. But the, the very few cases, very few cases at all, because it didn't spread so far. Um, but uh, restrictions were imposed uh, um, nationally. Uh, it meant that we, well, we were told to stay inside as much as possible. Um, a lot of people were uh, told to work at home if possible. Um, uh, there was obviously financial relief companies, um, uh, but we were allowed to go out. Um, you know, we were also told, you know, it's fine to go out, uh, uh, to go out and get some fresh air. Um, so it means I'm probably fitter than I've been for, for ages because I've been able to go out, you know, cycling just about every day. Um, which is something, I mean, for you, Neil, you've been in Spain where you haven't been allowed out at all, uh, or only until sort of recently. And that's been, uh, th th that's been much more difficult, I think. But professional sports have been closed down. Um, I, th I believe this Monday they are going, uh, they are starting to allow professional athletes to train again. Uh, but uh, training again individually. Um, uh, professional sports are still a long way from uh, from happening. Uh, amateur sports are uh, happening as well, but again, not in terms of a not competitively, uh, but only in terms of um, training. So, yeah, and apart from that, it's been uh, the hairdressers have just opened. So, Rosia, my wife, um, managed to get a haircut, which, uh, much to her delight, 
Um, um, so yeah, it feels like infections, uh, we reached a peak about three or four weeks ago, uh, a peak of infections and in deaths. Um, and what they've been watching here, especially is the number of uh, intensive care beds being, uh, uh, being occupied. That has fallen from um, something like uh, well, from, to, to, from nearly fifteen hundred to, to five hundred. So it's fallen a lot. Uh, uh, the deaths every day are in the tens. Um, new new cases are quite uh, are quite low as well. But they've only been counting. Um, People who have who have been tested well uh, in terms of deaths, they've only been counting people who tested positive when they were when they died. Uh, in Belgium, for example, to the south of me, they've been counting all uh, suspected uh, deaths, all excess deaths uh, uh, suspected um, uh, of uh, dying of the coronavirus, which is why their numbers look very bad. And when you actually look at the Dutch numbers, the the, the Dutch uh, statistical office has been. Uh, Publishing numbers of excess deaths, um, and that was at some point around a thousand a week extra deaths, uh, which were sort of unaccounted for and above um, uh, above average. That's now fallen to about uh, to to under five hundred a week. So it shows that the here the infection, the whole thing has, uh, or the the pandemic has been contained, uh, and they're looking at easing restrictions. Um, but uh, the Dutch Minister for Sport and Culture said uh, earlier this week that he doesn't envisage, uh, for example, football happening in front of uh, crowds um, uh, until uh, until there's a vaccine, which would be you know sometime next year maybe. So there would be no professional sports in front of crowds, no no major e- events where tens of thousands of people attending uh, until you know next year sometime um, but i mean like i said knowing what's happening with uh, you uh, neil where you were basically locked inside for something like 6 weeks or 8 weeks uh, i felt comparatively fortunate yeah yeah things are obviously pretty bad here in spain i mean if you're looking at the the number of infected people um, with the coronavirus, I think Spain is the second highest number in the, the world. Um, there's been close to 27,000 deaths here. Um, and basically, um, the Basque region, uh, Madrid, and uh, parts of Catalonia have been uh, the worst hit. So I think we had one of the strictest lockdowns uh, pretty much in, in all of Europe. Uh, we had seven weeks of, uh, of total lockdown. Um, we're basically... Um, the only things that were open were uh, grocery stores um, selling food and pharmacies. Um, all of the businesses were pretty much shut. And uh, it was only about two weeks ago that uh, um, these restrictions were eased somewhat. Uh, people were allowed, people with children were allowed to go out during the day uh, for about one hour at a time. And then uh, just over one week ago, um, after seven weeks of being in lockdown, we were allowed to go out at two uh, set intervals during the day to go out and do some exercise, take a walk. Um, so that has been uh, has been much welcomed. Um, kind of at the peak of um, of the, the the outbreak here. I mean, we were looking at around nine hundred to a thousand people dying per day. Um, it was obviously a really grave situation. There was uh, a report that uh, a shopping center in the middle of Madrid, uh, which had an ice rink in the middle of it, was was being used to store dead bodies. It was it was that bad. The, the hospitals and um, ICE units were that overwhelmed. Um, but uh, now we're kind of looking at around 100, between 150 and 200 deaths a day. 
So we're certainly, it appears, um, through the worst of it. Um, and in terms of sport, uh, yeah, it's kind of like, like, like a lot of the rest of the world, everything was completely shut down, completely stopped. Um, and plans are now afoot to get um, the local uh, football leagues up and running again. Um, there are plans in place to have La Liga, the Spanish, uh, Spanish leagues of football, um, to start again uh, on the 12th of June. And uh, teams indeed were back training, um, I think, among each other uh, on the 5th of May. So um, I think so far there's been around 2,500 uh, 2, players tested. And um, when they went back to training, only five came back uh, as positive. So uh, the people that are running the league are seeing that as kind of a positive thing. And, uh, well, we'll just have to kind of wait and see how it goes. Um, I think uh, MotoGP, to a certain extent, and many other sports are probably watching football at the moment and seeing how that situation develops. I know that the German league, for example, is due to get underway again uh, this weekend coming. So, um, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to cross our fingers, basically, and, uh, and see how that pans out. Um, but in terms of MotoGP, guys, I want to move on finally to, to some MotoGP action. We've obviously heard um, Carmelo Espaleta speaking on, on certain platforms. Uh, he's been speaking with uh, BT Sport, for example. Um, also, Dorner issued a, a, a press release with uh, an interview with Carmelo uh, just last week. Um, what is the situation at, at the moment, David? Because uh, as it stands, we have two dates that aren't absolutely 100% set in stone, but we have the 19th, the 26th of July set aside to go racing. Uh, both of those happening at Jerez. Um, but how do things stand for the championship as a whole as it's at the moment? Well, I mean, officially what has happened is that these two dates have been penciled in, uh, in Jerez. Uh, they would happen on the 19th and the 26th, and the rest of those dates would then be um, basically the rest of the calendar at the moment is provisionally as it was published earlier with uh, rescheduling. So, you know, the next race would be the Czech Republic and Austria and all the rest of it. However, uh, the reality is, is is that we're almost certainly not going to, um, or, or that certainly won't won't sort of uh, stand. Um, there is talk of there being basically um, a a championship of between ten and twelve races um, at a few circuits with. Uh, Races basically repeated on on successive weeks. So there would be two races at Jerez. Uh, there would be two races at Aragon. Um, there would be two races at Valencia. Um, uh, there would be uh, maybe two races in Misano, two races in Austria. Obviously, Austria are keen to get underway um, and are making plans uh, to host uh, two races uh, for uh, F1, I think sometime at the beginning of July. I forget the exact dates. Um, uh, and obviously, the Red Bull Ring uh, is owned by Austria's richest man um, with an awful lot of uh, political clout. And so he can make these things uh, happen. Austria is, is starting to lift its restrictions. Um, it's come out reasonably well of, from the uh, coronavirus crisis, uh, from the pandemic. They, they didn't have a lot of deaths. They didn't have a, um, a, a lot of uh, cases. They locked down quite strictly and are 
um, uh, easing that up. Um, but I think the biggest thing is the plan is to fly everyone into Spain uh, early with very restricted numbers. I think the numbers I've seen are about 1,300 in the, uh, in the paddock. Um, which would be 40 people from the factory teams, 25 from the satellite teams, and I think 10 or 15 from a from the Moto3 and the Moto2 teams. And that's down from um, around 3,000 overall, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You'd be talking about uh, you'd be talking about sort of yeah about three thousand. And normally for a factory team, you might have hundred you know hundred people actually uh, uh, turning up there. Uh, with hospitality staff and all the rest of it. Um, obviously, no hospitality. It would just be uh, paddock people. Everyone entering the paddock would be uh, would be tested. Uh, they are trying to fly everyone over to, um, or the, the plan is to fly everyone over to Spain uh, two weeks before, because at the moment they, there is a state of emergency officially in Spain. And uh, at the moment, um, Everyone, as long as the state of emergency lasts, everyone who enters Spain will be forced to quarantine for, uh, what's it? Uh, 14, for 14 days. days, I think. And that starts on yeah. Friday. Ah, that starts Friday. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that will last until the, until the, um, uh, until the state of emergency is lifted, which could be, uh, I think, is it the 24th of May that that's, that it's due to be lifted or is yep. it? It's around the, it's around the end of May. So it, it could be extended for a few more weeks. But either way, Dawn, the, the plan for Dawn is to get everyone in early, uh, lock them down uh, or put them in a, you know, one place. And um, uh, just prevent the infection. The, the, the plan is also to have everyone be tested before they leave their um, uh, before they leave home. And if they test positive, then they won't be allowed to travel. Um, if they uh, uh, they'll be tested on entering the paddock, um, the paddock will basically it will be a very strange place because normally it's like a little village, but this will be like a little village in lockdown. Where um, uh, David Abrivio did a, an interview with us, uh, I think on Monday, and spoke about uh, you know everyone would be going into the it would go to the garage, work, um, uh, have lunch. Uh, in the garage, have dinner maybe in the garage, and then go back to the hotel and sleep. And they, you know, the the social aspects of the paddock would be would be completely disappeared. But there would be racing. Yeah, there would be racing, and uh, as it stands, that would be a massive bonus considering what the situation was a couple of weeks back. Um, JB, I mean, if you look at the MotoGP calendar um, from after the summer break, we had races in Austria, the Czech Republic, uh, the UK. And then we had uh, Italy and Spain, but there's obviously a whole host of overseas races. I say overseas in adverted commas, races outside of Europe. Uh, we're talking about America, Argentina, uh, then of course uh, the four rounds in um, Asia, Southeast Asia and Australia. I mean, um, is this looking like a European centric uh, championship at the moment or is there any possibility that we could for example have a race at Austin uh, whenever it's supposed to be going ahead uh, sometime in October late October or November 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 sorry yep yeah um you know Neil uh, your guess is as good as mine in a lot of cases because there's there's a great deal of uncertainty um you know, right now, right now, as it stands, the United States has travel restrictions on China, Iran, uh, the United Kingdom, Ireland, and Europe. Presumably, those would be lifted by November, but we can't say for certain. Uh, the trend would seem to be to be that case, but 
there's been no talk about when those travel restrictions would be would be lifted. So right there, there's there's a, a non-starter. Uh, I did dive into a little bit onto the statistics of of Texas and and what their uh, situation is in, in terms of the coronavirus outbreak, and it's been pretty pretty good there with with an asterisk i think in terms of the southern states and and for how large it is um the response has been quite quite good um they seem to have good capacity in their healthcare system uh cases have more or less plateaued although this last week and and, and truthfully there's a number of states in just the last week or so that have seen upticks in in coronavirus cases and it's hard to tell if that's because of changing state policies or if People are just tired of being at home and are getting a little uh, lackadaisical in their in their social distancing. Um, but Texas is one of those states that's very aggressively trying to reopen its its economy. And your guess is as good as mine on on what effect that could have. That you know, I think the biggest thing in the United States right now is is this debate on whether or not we're opening too soon, and if we are what that means in terms of a resurgence of cases. You know, we could be looking at a situation in the middle of summer or late summer where we're having to deal with this outbreak all over again. We might not be. It, it, it's hard to say. And, you know, we're obviously having a great discussion in the United States about that right now. Yeah, I saw some reports uh, from Germany that uh, there'd been a, an uptick, uptick in new cases um uh the the r0 which is the you know the basically yeah. the infection rate the the number of people you infect if you're ill uh that that is uh, sort of crept up to over one again um which was not encouraging but i, I mean like i saw this as a fleeting news story I, i'm it, it hasn't it hasn't led to any sort of specific changes inside of germany based on uh, uh you know on their opening up of uh, uh, of the economy and um, uh, and gatherings and stuff but you know all public uh, all public gatherings of uh, i think uh, over a hundred people, I forget. But anyway, all, all large public uh, 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 gatherings have been banned in uh, in Germany for uh, 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 well, still until the end of August. But it's you know it, that's going to be extended. Neil, just to to answer your question, since since you posed me a question, I didn't really answer it. Uh, I do think this is going to be a year with a very Eurocentric uh, season. Uh, just from just from a log- logistical point of view, just from a fact that Europe as a continent in general had a, a more unified approach in terms of dealing with uh, the outbreak, um, had much more drastic uh, measures than some other places, especially uh, in comparison to the United States. So it, it feels like that curve has been flattened more or the, the R value, as David was mentioning, has, has gone um, below one, which is very critical. Uh, I just see the European economy and the European Union being more open as we go into summer and into the fall. And, you know, that's also without any sort of discussion on, you know, from an American side. What does Austin look like in November? Because I've been there and it's cold and I don't know the viability of running a MotoGP race in that weather. And we might honestly not really know if we can uh, until we get closer in, closer to that date. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think just reading between the lines and then having read some of the some of the official comments coming out of Torna, it does seem that um, getting the championship up and running is obviously the first priority, and um, 
well, obviously those overseas dates, um, there's up to what, four or five months until some of those overseas dates like Sepang, for example, or, um, or possibly another venue. And I've heard Qatar mentioned as a possible place that could run maybe a double or even a triple header at the end of the year. Um, but I think uh, Carmelo recently said that um, by September, they expect to know whether uh, the championship will actually run over um uh, over 10 or 12 races that would be held in Europe and then we might have two maybe three maximum um outside but with the way the kind of the world is um also in terms of cost I mean that would cost um you know quite a lot for for Dorna to ship everything out to somewhere in America for example or in Southeast Asia um whereas if you're traveling within the confines of two or three countries maybe four countries in Europe then um obviously it's not going to cost as much to ship the equipment around and you can do it by road Exactly, you can do it by road without. Uh, yeah, which, which is huge. You know, you bring up you bring up a really good point, Neil, about the cost of it. And I don't think I've seen anyone ever really have a conversation about the financial situation of Dorna itself and the fact that there's a there's a large economic impact that this virus has had on the world economy. You know, we we are almost certainly going to go into a global recession because of it. And, you know, just from an American point of view, we've seen businesses scale back considerably. From my perspective on the, on the motorcycle industry as a whole, we just got our first, uh, set of numbers for the American sales and April was down 40%. We're down 9% on the year so far compared to last year. This is going to be a horrible year for the American motorcycle industry. And I think it's going to be a horrible year for the global motorcycle industry, uh, outside of, well, at least certainly for the, for the Western, uh, countries. And maybe there's there's some wisdom into saying this isn't a season where we can have the expenditure of flying to Qatar, flying to Sepang, flying to Malay, um, Australia, you know, and all these other races that you know affect the bottom line rather considerably. Even though they're they're popular events and they draw good crowds, uh, and there's and there's tons of fans in those locations, we might need to be a little bit more bean countery if i can make that a word in our approach to the to the rest of this year yeah for sure david sorry um uh, i the, yeah i mean that's a, the, the, the that's a very good point that what i know of dawner's income streams is they are they're composed of three elements basically they're um roughly a third each but um uh, not precisely that comes from uh the sanctioning fees which circuits pay to organize races it comes from selling tv broadcasting rights and it comes from sponsorship deals now um a lot of the sanctioning fees are going to uh, fall away basically circuits are not going to be able to pay the kind of money that they would normally um especially if you think for example uh you know all of these races are going to be held certainly in the first half of the year but probably for the entire year behind closed doors without fans so circuits which are dependent on uh their fans um, uh, for, for their income, that you know, they're they're not going to be, they're basically not going to be able to, um, uh, to you know, to, just to pay the uh, pay the amount of money. Um, I mean, uh, a track like Aragon, a track like um, 
uh, like Jerez, where they are backed by money from the tourism industry because you know they've been basically they hold this thing as a as a great big advert for for, for tourism. Again, tourism going again is going to be really important, by the way. Um, but uh, they that's where uh, they've got the money to spend on it. But if a lot of that falls away, then that already cuts uh, Dorna's income down sort of enormously. Um, there's going to be negotiations with broadcasters. You know, they they were sold a series of 20 races and instead they get maybe 10 or 12 or something. Uh, broadcasters are also suffering really badly from cuts in advertising. So we'll have to wait and see. So it's a really complicated situation. Dorna's finances are going to be hit and uh, holding a European uh, uh, or a mostly European round is going to be uh, a much more sustainable option. Yeah, I saw an interesting press release last week from uh, the circuit at Misano, uh, which obviously has hosted a, a MotoGP race since 2007. And they were basically saying that um, the possibility of hosting a world championship race uh, in the kind of immediate aftermath of uh, such a crisis would be a fantastic show to the world that uh, Italy and that part of Italy specifically, which was so badly hit by COVID-19, uh, is capable of recovering in uh, quite a short order, quite a short amount of time. Um, so it's another thing that I've kind of heard that um, would be a real real boost for certain countries, certain circuits, certain regions to be able to have um, a world championship level event that could showcase to the world that, uh, hey, look, we are kind of getting back on our feet and get back to normal. Um, so we've kind of talked about um, about the number of races and when they're due to start. Um, I mean, obviously, the day-to-day uh, -day running of MotoGP and World Superbike is going to be massively affected by this. Um, We've heard that Dorna is working on a medical protocol for the weekend um, to make sure that people are tested before and during the event. Um, how is that developing, David? And, um, and where are Dorna uh, seeking advice uh, to make sure that they have the correct medical protocol uh, going into the first race of the weekend in July? Sorry, the first race of the year in July. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, they've been uh, speaking a lot to the uh, Spanish Ministry of Health, um, uh, and uh, as well as I think the health authorities in uh, in Italy, uh, they've been speaking to Olympic committees as well, uh, because uh, quite often throughout throughout Europe, the Olympic committees are basically uh, uh, umbrella organisations uh, looking after a lot of sport through um, um, uh, sort of throughout the throughout particular countries um, uh, and they've been so they've been looking at these uh, various protocols which would involve people being tested when they go into the paddock and as soon as someone tests positive then uh, it means that um, they will be uh, basically quarantined and, and isolated and uh, sort of uh, removed from the paddock immediately um, uh, but I mean, there there's still lots of question marks sort of left open. For a start, no one has mentioned uh, marshals, which to me are is a really big thing because Dawn is talking about thirteen hundred people, which would be the minimum number of people um, uh, that Dawn needs to actually uh, to actually hold a race, which basically means uh, the teams, the riders, uh, race direction, uh, the necessary Dawn workers to uh, actually. Um, you know, basically 
basically put it on TV. So that would be cameramen and uh, or, or camera operators, um, uh, sound people, um, and uh, all the people who need to to, to run uh, who needed to run the cables and all the rest of it, uh, and a few administrative uh, staff. Uh, but it doesn't include the 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 the, uh, the marshals and the medical marshals who are all volunteers. And uh, again, that, we're talking another somewhere between three and 500 people. Uh, normally the responsibility of the circuit, um, uh, there's no clarity on what their testing protocol would be or where they would stay. Uh, there, there's been some comments from Carmelo Espelata saying, oh, it's all right. You know, when if a, if a, a medical marshal uh, has to treat a rider or has to pick up a rider or a marshal has to, has to interact with the rider, the rider will be wearing a helmet and gloves so it won't make any difference. Um, but, you know, if, they, if they're injured, then they will need, then uh, the medical uh, medical staff will need to actually sort of uh, get hands on with these uh, doctors. And it's going to, with a rider, he's going to have to, you know, take his leathers off, take his helmet off to to, 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 to check them over. And, and there's no protocol in, the, in place for that. That's going to be done quickly in a, in difficult situations. Um, so yeah, the, I, I can see that there's lots and lots of sort of complications ahead, which I don't think, which I haven't seen addressed properly yet. Yeah, Jensen David just mentioned one of the, the possible problems that uh, could pop up from um, racing resuming in July. I mean, what, what other kind of things could you foresee happening that would cause a, a, a massive issue? Um, within the paddock uh, and might even lead to, to some seriously dramatic effects. Yeah. I mean, it depends how, how doomsday scenario you want to get with it, Neil. Um, you know, I don't, I think there needs to be a serious conversation about whether or not uh, a rider gets infected. Um, and what if that rider is in championship contention? Uh, what if it's a team principal? Um, I, I look at the, the paddock as, as a, as a very dangerous place. In fact, I'd be curious to see your guys' perspective on whether or not you would be willing to, to attend these early races be, because you're taking people from the different corners of the globe. You're bringing them together and, and you can do your best to, to socially distance. You can do your best to mitigate the risks. But as David just explained, you know, it's hard to, to plan for every contingency and you can't, you know, how do you protect a, a, a medic, a corner working medic who's basically a field medic from, you know, exposure to a coronavirus if they're treating a, a rider who has life threatening injuries? Um, it's hard enough to do that in a hospital setting, let alone on the side of a racetrack in, in you know, a gravel pit with, with motorcycles going by. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's very difficult in my mind. And, We've seen issues with testing. We've seen, um, you know, it, it really doesn't take much to to spark uh, a viral outbreak. Um, is quarantining and testing enough? Or is it is it too reactionary, I guess, is my concern. Um, is there a way that the series can be more proactive? And, like, you know, at some point, too, you just got to say, you know, life is a risk and motorcycles is a risk. And how much risk are we comfortable with? So if I can kick the question back to you guys, how, how much risk are you comfortable with in terms of, of, of attending these races yourself in person? I know there's a great deal of, of talk about whether or not their journalists will be allowed in or not. We can, we can get to that conversation maybe later, but 
just from like your own personal safety standards, you know, where are you willing to draw a line? Because personally myself, I canceled my ticket to the Austin round before the Austin round was canceled just because I didn't like the way Dorna was talking in terms of, of safety and the risk and what things were looking like in the United States. I didn't want to take the risk for my personal health because for most part, asphalt and rubber is very dependent on, on me being healthy and able to ride motorcycles and having had the flu very badly. I was in bed for two weeks uh, at the end of last year. I know what that effect is monetarily, and I know what that effect is in terms of work product, and I didn't want to go through that again. Yeah, I mean, um, it's a tough question, but uh, when you're talking about livelihood um, and if, the, if a chance became available to go to, uh, to these races, I mean, I would have to, I would have to accept, you know. Um, I consider myself fairly young, uh, in fairly decent health, touch wood, and um, yeah, you would just have to basically put your trust in the protocols that are being devised at the moment. Um, I mean, the other option would be staying at home and not getting paid, you know. And I think that's one of the it's uh, one of the things that many people in MotoGP are probably having to uh, are probably running. Through, these are questions that are probably running through the heads of many people that work in uh, work in sport, not just in MotoGP, but in you know, in football, basketball, um, all types of uh, of sports around the world. Uh, David, would you be the same? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, again, my situation is a little bit, a bit difficult to, to to yours because you know you're what twenty five years younger than me. Um, my age, I mean, at, at, I am not in the highest risk group, but I'm in a much higher risk group than than you are. For example, um, I could. Uh, I, I could and I can work from home because I've I've, I've done it for uh, I've done it for years or I did it for years before I could afford to go to lots of races. Now I go to more races and also I still have some sort of income coming in from the uh, from the website. People are still prepared to pay. Thank you know. Thankfully, people are still prepared to pay to read what I write. Um, so it, it's a little it's a little le- less pressing. But the journalist in me would really want to go. I mean, for two reasons. First of all, there's a race on. I want to know what's happening. But secondly, um, it's a race in unusual circumstances. For the same reason that I mean, like we were, we were both in Qatar, uh, Neil, and it was, uh, it was odd, strange. Uh, yes, exactly, exactly. It was odd and it was unusual, and uh, it was the sort of thing. Uh, I'm glad I went because it was just so very, very strange. But, um, you know, the, the, the paddock is really, it's in a healthy environment because you are mingling with a lot of people uh, and you are talking to a lot of people. Um, so, yeah, I, I honestly, I have no idea whether I'd be willing to go. Um, I mean, one of the, the things that we all hear about and we're all advised to do is uh, social distancing throughout um, throughout this. Um, however, that is obviously going to be quite hard to put in place whenever people get to the paddock, uh, not just for marshals that might be attending to riders that have crashed, um, but within garages. I mean, are teams realistically going to be able to social distance? Is that is that going to be a viable thing? Uh, well, I mean, that was what was interesting about David Abrivio's um, uh, interview on Monday was uh, he spoke about that and he said, you know, I, I can socially distance. That's easy. I could just sort of stand back and shout at people. Uh, but uh, when you have three mechanics who need to work on a motorcycle, uh, that's a limited space. They need to work, to, you know, work in quite uh, proximity. But he compared it to being in lockdown 
at home, he said, basically, we're going to have to become like families where, yeah. you know, at home, you're locked down with your family. And um, uh, so you you spend down with the, with your family, and you hope no one in your family is infected. Uh, and th- that'll be the same way with teams. Teams will have to live as families and be locked down together. Yeah, Dave, I think you hit the the nail on the head there. It's the concept of a pod, right? Um, we're going to have to create these pods, these groups of people that are kind of committed to being one unit and being healthy together. You know, the, the Ducati team is going to probably, you know, in an ideal world, I would say a team self isolates with each other and you're, you know, you trust your, your teammates to, to, you know, social distance and, and stay healthy when they're not in the paddock. And maybe there even becomes a point where you quarantine together, um, to, to keep that pods, uh, health. In shape and, and onto a larger sense, I think the MotoGP population is going to have to be like that. For me, the issue is, is really the idea that you're going to come from the different corners of the European Union primarily, go to a racetrack, intermingle, and then go back to those places. And there's just a lot of opportunity for the introduction and, and, you know, the introduction of, of the virus into the, into the paddock and for it then to spread and then get spread back out into the general population. So there needs to be some sort of prophylactic between the, 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 the teams maybe on a smaller unit or the paddock as a larger unit from, uh, you know, the general population. And I think that that concept of like, Hey, you know, we're going to, as a team, just spend all that time together. And does that mean that they get sequestered from their families? Uh, You know, maybe it does. Uh, it becomes even more complicated because that's so um like i said the, the paddock is a is a village and you could talk about okay the team is going to have to stay together but the thing is teams are not natural entities um uh, it is extremely common to see uh, walking through the paddock in the evenings uh, to see people from one team talking to another team i mean uh you know Alberto Pooge, team principal of Repsol Honda, spends most of his time talking to Mike Leitner in the KTM hospitality um, because the two are old friends. You know, they've been, they've spent a lot, of, they've spent a lot of, they spent years and years and years together. Um, and it's very common for people to switch teams. Uh, the, you know, there are the, the Lloyd brothers, one of the Petronas team, uh, one of the KTM team, you know, these these people are brothers in two different teams. Are you going to prevent them from speaking to uh, to one another? Um, it becomes it, things get really really uh, complicated, and it will also require people to break certain habits. You are used to wandering through the paddock and having a chat with people. And you won't be able to do that. Um, people are used to social distancing at home, but then they will have to learn a whole set of new behaviors once they get to the paddock. You know, I know we still have a bit of figuring out to do with the calendar and it seems to change, you know, almost on a weekly basis, but there is some power into this idea that we could have a rapid succession of, of races, you know, weekends that are back to back, double headers, triple headers. Um, that does create a situation that is more amenable to, to keeping the paddock. You, you call the paddock a family. I always think of it as a traveling circus and it is. You know, if you have multiple weekends where you're just traveling around together, it makes it a little bit easier to keep that as just one unit. If the MotoGP paddock is just one unit, it 
it makes it easier for people to intermingle and, and have contact and two mechanics or three mechanics to be working on a bike at the same time or a rider to debrief to have a scrum of, you know, four or five team members around them. If that whole unit is, is self-isolated, you know, throughout the process uh, and maybe the schedule and the demands of, of trying to meet, you know, a certain number of, of races within the year, you know, helps that process. Yeah. And the, the, the other thing is, is like having uh, a tight schedule at the start means that um, you could get maybe five or six races in. And if there is a second spike or whatever, uh, then at least you've got a whole bunch of races in. At least you've got those five or six races and it's starting to look like a championship. Whereas if you sort of space them out one every three weeks, uh, then uh, you could end up with one race or two races and then absolutely nothing. Yeah, certainly an interesting point that you make there. Um, now, one of the interesting things when we're looking at uh, the world of football, uh, soccer to our American fans, uh, for example, in the Bundesliga in Germany, uh, one of the second division teams, uh, Dynamo Dresden, uh, they had their players back training together. Uh, now, a handful of their players tested positive for COVID-19 and the local government decided that the entire squad had to be put into quarantine for 14 days. Uh, meaning that they're going to miss this weekend's uh, fixture. Um, now, let's imagine a situation similar in MotoGP. What happens if, for example, uh, Mark Marquez and his chief mechanic test positive for COVID-19 whenever they arrive in Jerez? Uh, what is the situation there? And also, say one or say five riders miss two races because they have contracted the virus. Uh, can we really say that things are, are fair uh, whenever um, things that might be out of the rider's control uh, cause them to get sick? Uh, Neil, I'll, I'll ask you that question back to you. Would we say it was unfair if a situation like that, let's say it was the measles or, or some other uh, infectious disease that you know doesn't cause uh, pandemics, if that took a rider or or a team out of contention, would we say that season wasn't fair? I don't. Well, we might say it's unfair, but we would we would certainly accept it. Um, but uh, I mean, in your opinion, what what, what happens? Uh, here's a another way of looking at this. Let's say um, it's a normal season, and uh, someone gets the the. the just for the sake of argument, Mark Marquez gets taken out uh, in a crash by Maverick Vinales. Um, Marquez breaks his leg and can't race for a, uh, 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 and he's forced to miss a few races. You know, is that then a is that then a, a fair championship? I mean, we've had examples: Danny Pedrosa um, uh, being uh, uh, was it two thousand and. 10, I think, when he crashed it, when he crashed in Mutegi or, or 2011, um, uh, broke his collarbone. Uh, he was still in contention for, for, for the championship then. And, you know, was it fair that uh, through no fault of his own, he crashed and, and, and suffered an injury, which took him out for a few races? So injuries can happen and we just have to accept, I guess, that infections may happen. 
Uh, I think in the current situation you do, and it becomes even more complicated when you think about, uh, let's say, Mark Marquez is in contention for the championship um, and he becomes ill. Um, he shares a home with his brother, Alex Marquez, who is also his teammate. What happens then? You know, like all of Repsol Honda is out. Uh it, things get really, really complicated really, really quickly. So I think you just have to race and get on with it, uh, hope for the best and accept whatever happens, whatever comes your way. We've had to accept this pandemic uh, and find ways around it. So you just have to deal with it, I think. Uh, I think that's that's racing. That's what uh, a championship is. That's that's life. That's the drama of it. You, you can't completely weed out all the external factors. And you know, we we have you know no shortage of examples when riders have become physically injured uh, racing either on the track or or injured in life and and haven't been able to participate. And is that fair? Okay, let's say not, but life isn't fair. Racing isn't fair. Uh, you have all the same opportunities as everyone else. And sometimes it just comes down to luck and the roll of the dice. And, you know, as uh, the late Nikki Hayden would say, that's why you, you line up on Sunday because you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, things can always get shooken up. There can always be an X factor that you can't plan for. And, and this is just part of that, in my opinion. Life isn't fair. Coronavirus updates and life advice coming at you from the Panic Pass podcast this week. <laughs> How about that? Uh, sure. We've obviously talked about the possibility of uh, of a rider potentially getting sick and, and whether that. Uh, how that would affect the championship and how we would deal with that as a championship. Uh, what about the situation in that uh, we're going to potentially have a championship made up of 10 races where we go to five different racetracks, maybe six different racetracks and race there twice each or maybe once on on, uh, on certain occasions. Um, it's not going to be the standard championship in that there are so many racetracks that uh, some are going to suit Ducati and Honda, others are going to suit Yamaha and Suzuki. I mean, we could have a championship which is quite heavily leaning towards favoring one type of bike, right, David? Because, I mean, let's say, for example, we go to the the Red Bull ring uh, for two races. I mean, there's two races where Andrea Dovizioso can basically say, hey, I'm going to score two podiums, whereas someone like Alex Rins uh, might be thinking, I'll be lucky if I get in the top six. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, David Abrivio was quite interesting about that. He said um, that the he was pleased that the MSMA were co- cooperating uh, on basically just getting a, a championship running uh, because obviously it's not going to be fair. He said, you know, we're not going to go to Assen. We're not going to be go to Silverstone, which again is interesting because so far Silverstone is still on the calendar and nobody has mentioned it. Um, uh, but the chances are that we won't go to Silverstone. Uh, those are two races where Suzuki have done really well, where Yamaha do really well. Um, and yet we won't be racing. We, you know, there's a chance we won't be racing there. We might be going to, uh, Austria where uh, Ducati has done really, really well. But then we go to Jerez where Ducati has really struggled, uh, in recent years. Well, I mean, historically, although they've got a little bit better, um, in recent years. So yeah, it, things are so, I mean, 
again, we're not going to have a fair championship because we're not going to have a full championship. We're not going to go to um, Mugello, which would also be a really good track for Ducati because, just because of their top speed. Or uh, Mategi, also a good track for Ducati because of the, uh, uh, because of the back, stra- back straight. We're not going to go to Australia, or we might not go to Australia, um, uh, which would be, well, it'd be not going to Philip Island is bad for just about everybody in the world, I reckon. But um, <laughs> the not a lot treasure. you can do about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I think um, we will still go to a reasonable mix of tracks. We will go to um, uh, obviously the Spanish tracks. Aragon, you know, Aragon looks like being two wins for Mark Marquez right there. Um, but maybe not. Maybe maybe the Yamahas are strong enough to actually challenge uh, uh, Marquez. Uh, Yamahas have historically been quite good at Jerez as well. Uh, Yamahas were fastest. Were, they were fastest during the tests at uh, Jerez. Um, so I think there's a there's a mixture, and the Suzuki's looks really really good during testing as well. So it's um, no, of course it's not going to be a fair championship, but it's going to be. It's going to be as fair as they can make it. And it's also going to be interesting to see because you're going to get a second shot at it. So, you know, if you're bad one week, then you've got a chance to learn from that and improve and try to make up the uh, the areas that you missed out on the week before. Uh, I have this this exact issue actually in my own personal racing here, here in Oregon because uh, our racing league is looking like we're going to uh, abandon uh, the track configuration that I do the best at, that... that um, you know, I'm more, most likely to win races in. And, you know, my philosophy on it's been like, well, that sucks, but at least I'm going to probably go racing this year. At least we're going to get some racing done. And, and racing is always about rising to the, the challenge that's in front of you. And yeah, are some riders and some brands going to be favored by the track selection on the calendar this year? Yeah, that's probably the case, but that's racing. Racing is a challenge. And so, my, my my biggest hope is I just hope no one puts an asterisk on whatever the, the results are at the end of the year where we say, oh, well, that person was only a champion because we raced at XYZ track or these venues or in these countries, uh, because I think that's a shame. I would hate to see someone, you know, especially if we do get a good chunk of races done, um, not be given the full uh, credit that they deserve for, for getting through the end of the season. Yeah, for sure, JP. And as you mentioned, uh as there was a situation relatively recently where we were looking at nothing happening this year, uh, I think any racing that we see on track is going to be a bonus. And as you mentioned, David, the the, the fact that the MSMA, uh, the Manufacturers uh, Basically Association, uh, has uh, kind of got over uh, some of the divisions that existed there after uh, all that happened last year, particularly with the, uh, the kind of the aerodynamics uh, uh, differences or different views held towards aerodynamics. I think uh, that's certainly a good thing. Um, no, we've covered both points that I want to cover, but just uh, briefly uh, to end the show. I mean, uh, are we are we absolutely uh, looking at races behind closed doors this year? Is there any chance that we'll have races where uh, people are allowed to attend? I would say the chances of uh, people being allowed to attend are slim. 
Um, but then again, I mean, the point about this whole situation is, you know, like it's what is it, the twelfth of May now? So uh, two. When was the, the 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 race in Qatar was what the 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 ninth of March? So that's what nine ten weeks ago. Think of how the world has changed in those ten weeks. It's gone from um, okay. It looks like there might we might not get as much racing as we thought to we're going to get absolutely no racing at all to oh, okay things are starting to improve maybe we'll get some racing uh, so it's impossible to predict what's going to be happening in September or, or, or October um, but the chances of us having races with fans uh, is slim. And the question is uh, whether fans would actually be willing to attend. Certainly when I speak to uh, people at uh, some of the tracks that I know, they express this concern that, you know, look, even if we did um, uh, uh, open it up to everyone, are we really going to get, you know, normal crowds? Are we normally, are we really going to get 70, 80, 90, 100, 110,000 people come, uh, come and turn up? Um, there was a really interesting, uh, piece of, um, uh, research from, uh, there was a, in some interesting polling from the, um, 538 website who do a lot of, uh, statistical research and, and polling research and, um, stuff. They're known for their, uh, politics, but, uh, they also do a lot about, um, uh, about sports. And they asked people whether they would actually attend a race if they, uh, if they could. And, um, you know, right now, um, you know, that, well, they asked, how likely would you be, be to attend a sporting game or event in person right now if in government's restrictions were lifted? And only, uh, well, less than 7% say they were very likely. Um, a total of 24% said they were either very or somewhat likely. Um, which is a lot of people, uh, who are, you know, who wouldn't want to go. Um, now, as we said, Things change. Things have changed really, really quickly. So how? Who knows how they feel? I asked a few people on Twitter. And there were a lot of people. There were some people who said, "I'm going as soon as I possibly can. I'm going." And there are other people who said, "You know, look, I'm a season ticket for a, a holder for a for, for a, a an English football club. Um, I'm not going into a stadium, um, but perhaps they would be." feel a little bit less concerned about, say, uh, going to a track where there is wide open spaces uh, rather than packed into a stadium. So maybe they wouldn't want to go to Valencia, which is, you know, a proper stadium track, uh, whereas Bruno would be, it, it's much more wide open, it's much more spread out. Perhaps they would be less concerned about that. So it's it's impossible to say, even if crowds could go, whether they would go. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's an interesting point, David. But it's it's more than just are you willing to go to the track? Are you willing to take a train there? Are you willing to get on an airplane to go there? Are you willing to stand in line at the concession stand? Are you willing to have all these other interactions that I think people don't think about? It's really easy to say, you know, on Twitter, like, absolutely, I'll be there. But like, I'll be honest with you, I think twice about when I go to the grocery store right now and like the concept of being at a racetrack in a crowded environment is, is mind boggling to me. Um, you know, if I had to, to, I can't believe how pessimistic I am about all this. Cause usually I think of myself as an optimist, but <laughs> like if I had to give odds, I think we have an absolute 0% chance 
of having any races this year with fans in attendance. I think we have a 25% chance of even getting through a calendar that goes into October, November. I'm very worried about what, what the fall months are going to look like, especially in the Northern hemisphere. And honestly, I give 2021 50, 50 that it has fans. I don't think we've thought through this enough in terms of what the lasting effects of the coronavirus is going to have on, on sport and large gatherings in general on concerts, on, graduations from school uh you know you pick an event where there's more than 100 or 200 people there and this is going to have lasting effects especially if we don't have a vaccine yet and um you know it it, it's going to require a little bit more of a rethink and and i think MotoGP as a sport is going to have to start thinking a little bit more about how it can provide a better product when there isn't a live spectacle I have a question for you, Neil. I mean, we know that if we cut you, you bleed Liverpool red. Uh, let's say <laughs> uh, by some stroke of miracle uh, that uh, next week there was uh, they were flying Liverpool in to play Barcelona. Would you go into camp now and watch them? Well, I mean, we're talking about a very interesting situation in the life of Liverpool Football Club in that they're on the cusp of winning their first title uh, in 30 years. So I might just be willing to take that chance for such a historic moment. Uh, but I think in, in pretty normal circumstances, I would I would probably say no. Um, and, and you know what? I think it's kind of meaningless what we think, whether we would or would not go to a sporting event at the moment, because by everything I've read in MotoGP and pretty much every sport the, the likelihood of any fans attending in the next uh, in the next six months is pretty much next to zero so um, yeah I, I just can't really see see that happening and um, yeah I mean, I'm inclined to, to sort of uh, agree with JB in his fairly pessimistic view with regards to 2021 as well because until there is a vaccine I mean it's, it's hard to see normal mass gatherings of people going ahead as normal we're going to have to think very hard about social distancing and scene and, and just how many uh, how many people are going to be allowed to enter these these events i'm so sorry that you have to agree with me now i know this is this is a, this is a pivotal point in your life for you i'm sure um he, he, think about it from a different perspective think about it from the track perspective or from an events perspective because i remember having a conversation with the team at the indianapolis motor speedway and this is a racetrack. It's one of the largest racing venues in the world. Um, it's just mammoth in its size. But it's interesting to me that they only hold, I want to screw the number up, but it's around five events a year, uh, which from a business perspective is is mind-boggling. You have this huge asset that's, that's you know, it costs them money to maintain and upkeep and have security 24-7. It, it, it's a draw on their finances 365 days a year. And the smart business would figure out a way to have that track be earning money every day of that year, uh, you know, as much as possible. And here they are running, you know, half a dozen events. And what they explained was it's so difficult to handle the logistics and it requires so many people to, you know, provide the security for the massive facility, for the, the spectators, for the food, for the media, for the teams that they only do it for certain events that can create X amount of dollars, MotoGP, uh, IndyCar, Formula One, you know, you name it. And that's the approach that they have to take to event planning. And, you know, for, for smaller racetracks that maybe don't quite have that 
that crazy of a, of a business model, but the, it's a similar business model. They're still going to have that necessity of being able to say, okay, can we host a race here? If a quarter of the fans can show up, let's say they can only have a quarter of the fans that there's some sort of restriction. Every fourth seat has to be, you know, filled or, um, you know, there's a, there's a rate limiter there. Is that enough that it makes that event profitable? Is that enough that the, um, uncertainty of whether or not fans can show up is, is something that they can bet on. Cause that's, that's truthfully one of the things we're facing here again, like to bring up my, my own local racing, but it, it is analogous. We could go racing next month. Our, it is very, it is looking very likely that our, our racing facility, the track will be open. The social distancing standards will be eased enough that the law, the letter of the rule would allow us to go racing, but we have so much uncertainty on whether or not, People are one willing to leave their homes to go racing, which I, I think that's pretty high. I think people want to go racing, but two have the income and the ability to afford to go racing. And from the precarious state of American amateur road racing, we can't afford to have one bad round. Can a track like Assen or Barcelona or well, I was going to say the Red Bull Ring, but I think the Red Bull Ring would be able to absorb it. But you know, Phillip Island would they be able to afford? around that only had a quarter or a third or a half of the attendance that they normally do. What's the break even point? And I don't, I don't have an answer for you, but I know that there's a business component to this that is dependent on X number of people showing up in order for that race to be successful because otherwise we have to completely reevaluate the business model of MotoGP. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you about Aston because I've spoken to the people at Aston, and um, uh, basically, the, the Dutch TT, which is the the, the, the Dutch round of MotoGP, um, accounts for around about half of their income. Uh, but they have events at the circuit, and I'm speaking from memory. I might not be precisely right, but I think around 260 days a year. Um, so they have, I think, five or six big events where, where they get the bulk of their income from. Uh, but they have people, they have things happening, track days and uh, instruction days and launches. Um, uh, and, um, it, you know, the, the company outings and business days and God knows what else um, uh, are going on all the time. And all of those raise a little bit of money, uh, but the bulk of their money comes from, uh, comes from, the, the the MotoGP race uh, because it's still the largest single day event in uh, in the Netherlands, um, and if they cannot afford to operate uh, that, well, they cannot afford to operate with small crowds there um, or with no crowds. So uh, th- they wanted a race, um, but they really couldn't afford it without uh, or well they. They wanted a race, and I think they would have held it where we're without fans. But um, it, 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 they're already losing a lot of money this year. Uh, they're having to dip into their, their their financial reserves to 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 survive. And yeah, you know, next year, unless there is a vacuum vaccine, and people are happy with the with the way the vaccine is working, because again, so much of this is about expectations and about reacting to the way that. The, the events are playing out, um, and the public can the public perception uh, of that. Um, we might have a Assen in June, and uh, instead of having one hundred thousand, one hundred ten, I think the capacity is one hundred ten thousand. They might only have um, you know like seventy or eighty thousand. 
Baker survive on? If it's 50,000, then it starts to become a very difficult thing. And that's different to football as well. So, for example, uh, Neil, the club owns the, uh, owns the stadium. Um, and so the club can survive through the TV rights. Um, whereas that's, that's not true for circuits at all. You know, the, the, the circuits have to survive on ticket sales and actually getting bodies through the gate. Yeah, certainly all uh, all matters that will have to be pondered in uh, the future months um, in the world of uh, motorcycle racing, car racing, and pretty much uh, all types of sport uh, that uh, well depend on people coming through the game, as you said, David. Um, I think that pretty much brings us to uh, to the end of our discussion about uh, when we're likely to see some racing on track again. Uh, it's been a it's pretty a pretty informative uh, discussion, and I'd like to thank uh, my two guests today uh, for joining me, uh, Jensen. Thanks very much for uh, being on the show and uh, we look forward to having you back again soon. Yeah, Neil, always a pleasure to talk with you guys. And David, as always, uh, an absolute pleasure and uh, yeah, look forward to recording with you again in the near future. Uh, yes, indeed. And I really hope that perhaps we will be able to sit down actually in the same room and record a, uh, a race, uh, a podcast one day this year. But um, uh, I am not putting money, uh, not betting money on it happening just yet. Yeah, things that you thought you would never hear, number 243 on this show. <laughs> David Emmett, looking forward to being in the same room as me. Uh, well, thank you as well to you, dear listener, for listening once again to this latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. It's uh, a pleasure to bring you uh, this information, these updates. And uh, as David said, hopefully we'll be back uh, talking about some real actual racing, real events happening on track Uh not before too long. Uh, it's a good time to remind you that uh, we have some social media channels which you really should be following. That is Jensen. <laughs> You're going to push it onto me. Look at you. Uh, we are the Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter, Paddock Pass Podcast on Instagram, the Paddock Pass Podcast on Facebook. You can follow and support us on Patreon, of course. We've got some special content for you guys on there, a little behind the scenes, a little something extra. And the best part, it helps support the show and keep us going to the races and producing these uh, podcasts for you. And, uh, Neil, did I forget anything? Uh, how'd I do? Yeah, you did pretty well. That was the the old teacher and me coming back out again. I saw the, the, the student uh, sitting with his feet up on the table at the back of the classroom. And he just wanted to make sure that he wasn't asleep. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, good work, Jensen. You had that. You thought uh, I wasn't paying attention, but uh, you know, I've got I've, I've spent some time in the classroom myself, Neil. I know how the game works. <laughs> okay, well, thanks for that, Jensen. And uh, thank you, David. Thank you, dear listener. We'll be back again with another episode soon. Bye. Top work. We are we are all on hit have hit record right. We see the counter. Okay, just making sure because I fuck that up pretty often.